So good to see you. Happy summer, right? Happy summer. Well, today we are beginning a seven-week series in Psalm 119, and it's called A Song for Summer. So I'm going to read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Hey, how about we read it together? Okay, how about we read it together? And as we read it, let's be conscious of and thankful that we get to read God's Word, that we have the freedom to be here reading God's Word. Okay? All right, here we go. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is God's word. So the psalmist, he starts by describing blessed people. Who comes to your mind when you think of a blessed person? Maybe you think of someone who's successful, or maybe you think of someone famous, talented, or attractive. Would you consider yourself to be a blessed person? What in the world does blessed even mean? We say, God bless you when someone sneezes. We close our emails, blessings to you. We console others by saying, bless your heart. And hashtag blessed, it's one of the most popular hashtags on social media today, sometimes used as a humble brag. When things are going well with our families, at work or at church, we say how blessed we are, and that's true. But does that mean that we're only blessed when things are going well? When the outcomes of our lives are positive? When Jesus talks about blessedness in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he said that the blessed ones are the ones who mourn. And the blessed ones are those who are actually persecuted for his sake and for righteousness. So Jesus describes a state of blessedness that's obviously not comfortable, conflict-free, and prosperous. It's definitely not worthy of being hashtag blessed by social media standards. But you know what? From the beginning, from the very beginning, when God created humans, his intention was to bless them. Genesis 5-2 says, male and female, he created them, 
and he blessed them, and he named them man when he created them. God's desire to bless humanity is central to all the Old Testament covenants. In these covenants, God's blessing was revealed when he placed his favor upon his people. He would say to them, I will be your God and you shall be my people. God said this when he made covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, and he repeated his promise through his prophets that his favored people would be his and he would be their God. We're gonna look at an example from the Old Testament when God placed his favor on Moses. I want us to listen to this interchange and it took place when God gave his favor to Moses after he established the law through him. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So even though God told Moses that he had found favor in his sight, Moses doesn't seem to believe it because he asked God to show him his ways to find favor. Moses is an example of how God's blessed people often respond to the favor upon them. First, they recognize that God's favor is unmerited. It seems too good to be true. And second, they want to know and obey God's ways so that they can live into the favor of God that they never earned in the first place. This Old Testament passage points forward to you and me, to how God declares us to be favored, blessed people, not based on our merits, but based on his grace through faith in Jesus and his merits. For believers in Christ, our identity is God's chosen people, favored and blessed by him. And as God's favored, blessed people, we're empowered and we're motivated to follow his ways. Now, we don't learn and walk in God's ways to earn his favor. Our obedience is actually an outflow. It's a result of who we are as recipients of his favor and his grace. One more insight from Moses' conversation with the Lord. God's favor is evident in his presence with his chosen people. God said this to Moses in Exodus 33. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your, pro your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, 
Is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God's blessed people, they are favored with his presence. Let that sink in. God's presence is favor on you. His presence is a comfort and a place of rest for his people. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. Today, God favors us with his presence through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, who's present within us, comforts us, encourages us, and guides us. And that Spirit's presence in us, it's a verification to the entire watching world that God is with us and he's guiding us. So, God's presence is a sign of his favor and blessing in the Old Testament, but certainly in the New Testament as well. Paul uses that same Old Testament language when he describes the church in 2 Corinthians. He said, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Apostle John declares this same promise for every believer into eternity when the new heavens and the new earth will be established in Revelation 21.3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Biblical blessing happens within a relationship with our creator, God. This relationship of blessing, it's an intimate one because God chooses to dwell with us, to show us his mercy and his favor and to give himself to us. Ultimately, this relationship of blessing comes through his son, Jesus Christ, who came as a man to dwell among us and to show us mercy, to show us grace by dying for us on the cross for our sins. Today, as we begin our journey in Psalm 119, it will teach us how God's word is absolutely integral to living a truly blessed life as God's blessed people. So we don't know who wrote Psalm 119. Scholars guess maybe it was David, maybe it was Ezra, maybe it was Daniel. But we do know that this author wrote the longest chapter in the Bible with 176 verses and remarkably, nearly every single one of those 176 verses talks about the Word of God. As we cover Psalm 119 over the next seven weeks, 
you'll see the psalmist use several synonyms for God's word, and I'll be interchanging them as well. The instruction or law, known to the Hebrew people as the Torah, word, judgments, ordinances, decrees, commands, statutes, precepts, and promises, all God's word in the Bible. This psalm, it's an acrostic poem. It uses the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Every stanza consists of eight verses that begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Today, we'll be focusing on the Aleph stanza of the psalm, where verses one through eight begin with this first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we can't fully recognize the craftsmanship and the creativity of the author in our English translations. But gosh, we've got to appreciate the painstaking work of this author to make sure that every single verse in each stanza began, began with the same letter. Why would he do that? <laughs> well, a possible reason is that the author did this to help people memorize and learn the instructions of the Torah. For us today, it's going to be our ABCs of obedience to all of God's word in the Bible. Now, verse 1, it can be considered the theme for the entire psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, this is a definitive statement about who blessed people are. It's a description of our identity. It's not about what blessed people feel. Did you notice that? It doesn't describe a subjective feeling like happiness. Rather, it states an objective reality about who blessed people are. They are people whose way is blameless and who walk in the law of the Lord. Let's talk about this way of blessed people. In the original language, way could be literally a road or a path, or as in English, it could mean a way of life. I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if there actually was a blameless way that we could see, right? So whenever we reach this fork in the road in life, we could look down and say, ah, there's blameless way, and take that way, rather than venturing down dead ends, or worse, taking some highway to hell, right? There's no such road signs in life. But verse 1 tells us we have the law of the Lord. We have the law of the Lord to guide us and to point us in the right direction. The word is our GPS, not a global positioning system, a God positioning system. Notice that blessed people walk in the law of the Lord. Walking, it's an action, right? It takes effort. And when we walk, we make progress going somewhere. To walk in God's law, it's not just knowing about it, it's about keeping it. 
And that's why verse 2 tells us that God's blessed people keep his testimonies. The blessed life, we can't realize it just by studying God's word alone. It has to be walked in. It has to be applied. It has to be obeyed in our everyday lives. The psalmist gives two great benefits of walking in God's ways in verses 6 and 7. Freedom from shame. Who doesn't want that? And the ability to praise God with an upright heart. That talks about having integrity. These are just two rewards that should motivate us to walk in God's way. And we're going to see many more as we study Psalm 119. But I want us to take special note of the real motivation of blessed people to keep God's testimonies right at the end of verse 2. They seek him with their whole hearts. The real motivation of blessed people is to seek God with their whole hearts. Charles Spurgeon said, God is not truly sought by the cold researches of the brain. We must seek him with the heart. Love reveals itself to love. God manifests his heart to the heart of his people. It is in vain that we endeavor to comprehend him by reason. We must apprehend him by affection. Don't miss this important characteristic of blessed people. They are people who wholeheartedly seek a relationship with God as they study his word. Blessed people are first and foremost lovers of God. And the way they express and grow in their love of God is by learning and walking in his ways. Verse 3 gives us one more characteristic of blessed people. They do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Or to put it another way, they do what's right because they walk in his ways. Friends, we have to know God's ways in the Bible before we can actually walk in them and avoid doing wrong. Only by regularly studying and reading God's words can we learn what is right in his eyes. We're going to talk more about this later. But right now, let's just look at verse 4. The psalmist moves from describing blessed people to addressing God directly. It's almost like he's breaking into prayer at this point. And he says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Author Dallas Willard said, it's the responsibility of every Christ-centered follower to carve out a satisfying life under the rule of God or else sin starts to look good. God's precepts, they're not suggestions. They're not good ideas to ponder. They're not mere advice. They're God's design. They're God's design for our good and his glory, which he expects us to obey. Verses 3 and 4, they set godly standards for God's people. As I meditated on these verses over the past few weeks, I had to confess to God, I still do wrong at times. 
and I don't always keep his precepts diligently. So what do we do with verses like these? Ignore them as impossible? Treat them as holy hypotheticals? Nope. We need to walk in them. We need to remember our true identity as God's favored people, as God's blameless people, because Jesus took the blame for us on the cross. Our blameless status in Christ, it's the very foundation, it's the starting point for living as God's blessed people. Being blameless, it's not just a theological truce, truth. It's a way of life that we're meant to practice. We're meant to strive to be people who do no wrong. In practice, we may fail. We will fail. And we'll come up short of being blameless. But verses like these, they drive us. They drive us to seek God for his grace to forgive our wrongs and to empower us to seek him diligently again. This is exactly what the psalmist does in verse 5 when he laments, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This verse is kind of a confession of the psalmist's shortcomings, but it also reveals his love for God and his desire to be steadfast and diligent in the future. We can follow his example by humbly acknowledging when we struggle and fail to keep God's word. Then we get to recommit to follow God's ways in the future as the psalmist does in the last part of that psalm. We do this by fixing our eyes again on God's commandments. We do this by seeking him to praise him with an upright heart. And we do this by striving to keep God's righteous rules and statutes. Is this the pattern of your life? Is this the pursuit of your life? Is this our pursuit? Are we seen as people who strive to do what's right in God's eyes, to do no wrong to others, and who diligently follow God's ways in all things? This is how the world will see that we are truly God's blessed and favored people. Hillside, this is how we show light out in the world. So let's get practical. Let's get practical about being in God's work in the time that we have left together. Notice how the psalmist commits to fix his eyes on all God's commandments. Not just the ones that are easy to keep, all of them. To fix our eyes on all of God's commandments requires that we study the entire counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that every servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. To fix our eyes in this way requires that we set aside time to focus all our attention on reading, meditating on, and studying the word. 
This focused attention to God's word is sometimes referred to as doing devotions. But remember, this devotion to God's word is the means, it's the outflow described in verse two, where blessed people are seeking God with their, their whole hearts. This kind of a devotion, it's so much more than a great spiritual discipline to understand God's ways. And it's so much more than an academic exercise in theology. It's really about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, from Hebrews 12.2. We fix our eyes on God's word to fix our eyes on Jesus. So do you have a time where you fix all your attention on God's word? Well, if you answered no because you've never set us a regular time, I want to invite you this week to start by picking a time that you can commit to to read the Bible every day. It might be early in the morning before everybody gets up. Maybe it's when the baby sleeps. Maybe it's during your lunch break. Or maybe it's before you go to bed. When my children were babies, I remember complaining to my mentor that it was almost impossible to get a regular time to read my Bible and to pray. She encouraged me to do my best. She said God knew that I was a young mom with no free time and very little sleep. For that season of life, I settled for what I fondly called snatches of time with God. My Bible remained open on our kitchen counter. And as I stirred a pot or jostled a baby, I would try to read my Bible. And I did my Bible study in a very piecemeal fashion. This approach, it hadn't been my practice, and it wasn't my preference. But I learned to feast on one verse from the scriptures when it was just impossible to read a long portion of scripture. But Susanna Wesley, the mother of evangelists John and Charles Wesley, she fixed her eyes on God's word and Jesus. That's the stuff of legends. She raised John Wesley, known as the father of Methodism, and his brother Charles, who wrote more than 6,500 hymns, including Christ the Lord is Risen Today and Hark the Herald Angels Sing, along with eight other children, while maintaining a two our devotional time every day. Like I said, stuff of legends, right? <laughs> Early in life, Susanna had made a vow to never spend more time in leisure or entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study. Whoop, that would be rough, right, for a lot of us. To fulfill her commitment, she came up with this creative way to find privacy in a house of 10 kids. She'd bring her Bible to her favorite chair. Yes, Tom knows this story. She would throw her long apron over her head. And this was a signal from the, to the youngest child to the oldest child, do not disturb mom, okay? Unless it's an absolute emergency. 
So this daily sacred time in prayer and study, it equipped Susanna with the knowledge of God's word that would profoundly shaped her two sons, John and Charles, men who would later make a significant impact on the spread of Christianity in the 18th century into today, right? Just imagine with me how we might impact the next generation if we committed to daily meet with God to pray and study his word. We could rock the world. <laughs> For some of us, our first step is fixing our eyes on God's word and Jesus by setting a regular time to read the word of God every day this week. You might even block out the time in your calendar and make a standing appointment to read your Bible. Maybe you've already set a time to read God's word and to pray, but focusing all your attention is the challenging part. So if Susanna Wesley's apron tent method is not for you, then this week work on finding a place where you're least likely to get distracted. I turned my son's old bedroom into a study. There's a comfy couch in there for reading and there's a desk when I really want to spread out with all my books and study and read and write. In addition to finding the best place, don't forget to silence your phone and turn off the alerts on your computer. Okay, so once you've set a time and you've got this great place to read your Bible, start by asking God to meet with you as you read his word. Ask him to prepare your heart to hear his message and to understand the scripture passage that you'll be reading. One of my friends, she lights a candle to remind her that God is with her as she reads his word. We need the Holy Spirit to help us fix our spiritual eyes on his word and to give us spiritual insight and direction as we read the Bible. You might want to try a reading plan to help you stay focused, like a plan to read the Bible in one year, or use a daily devotional, like our daily bread. They're back in our foyer if you want to pick one up. You can sign up to receive a scripture passage that's emailed to you every day, or you can commit to listen to an audio recording of the scriptures and listen for a certain amount each day. Another really great way to help you stay focused on God's word is to journal. Then you can even try a journaling Bible. Here's some examples that I found. They're awesome. If you're artistic, you can even draw or paint your favorite memory verses. Isn't that amazing? When I was a new believer, I read a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's by Robert Boyd Munger. They actually have a really great children's edition as well. In his book, Munger takes the reader through the imaginary rooms of his heart as he invites Jesus to make his home there. This particular part of the story that I'm going to read to you struck me many years ago, and the Holy Spirit 
brings it to mind whenever I struggle to meet with God and to read his word. He reminded me of it as I was preparing this sermon. Munger wrote, we, that's Jesus and Robert, walked into the drawing room. This room was rather intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a bookcase, sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. He also seemed pleased with it. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let's come here often. It's secluded and quiet, and we can have fellowship together. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I could not think of anything I would rather do for the next few minutes than have time apart with Christ in an intimate com comradeship. He promised, I'll be here every morning early. Meet with me here, and we'll start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the drawing room, and he would take a book from the Bible, open it, and then we'd read it together. He would tell me of its riches and unfold to me its truths. They were wonderful hours together. In fact, we called the drawing room the withdrawing room. It was a period when we had our quiet time together. But little by little, under the pressures of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. I began to miss a day now and then, and I would miss two days in a row, and often more. I remember one morning when I was in a hurry as I passed the drawing room, the door was ajar. Looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace and the Lord sitting there. Blessed Master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you I would be here every morning to meet with you. Then I was even more ashamed. He'd been faithful in spite of my faithlessness. And I asked his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me. He said, the trouble with you is, you've been thinking of the quiet time of the Bible study and the prayer time as a factor in your own spiritual progress. But you've forgotten that this hour means something to me also. So Hillside, as we begin our journey through Psalm 119, let's endeavor together to fix our eyes on God's written word and on his living word, Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The goal is not about achieving Bible study perfection, okay? It's about seeking God with our whole hearts, living into our favored identity, and experiencing God's presence as we meet with him in prayer and in his word. Now please, don't get discouraged if you occasionally get distracted or if you miss a day. Just start fresh the next day. Jesus will be waiting for you. You are his favored, blessed people. He is your God. 
and he has promised to dwell with you. Amen? Amen. Okay. Okay.